Hello and welcome to this week's Why Football podcast with me, Michael Dryden and Eches Adokru. Today, I am very pleased to say we are joined by Ian Dale. Ian presents the evening show on LBC Radio, Mondays to Thursdays. He's also a panellist on CNN, CNN Talk and Radio 4's Any Was. Questions. Was. Sorry, <laughs> you're going to have to correct me here, Ian, on a lot of things, I think, because a, you're a very busy guy. Um, yeah, that, that lasted two years. It finished last year. So. Yeah. Um, and I believe you've been on the likes of Newsnight, Daily Politics, BBC Question Time, all the well-known yeah. shows, the Andrew Marshall, I'm a big fan of. Um, you're also a visiting professor at the University of East Anglia. Myself and Eches are uh, alumni from uh, UEA, so that's very interesting. And crucially, from a football standpoint, uh, you're the editor, I believe, founder of West Ham Till I Die. That is true. I can't believe you've missed out the winner of Pointless Celebrities. <laughs> so you won Pointless, Ian. <laughs> that, is, that is top, top stuff indeed. Yeah. Congratulations. I mean, that, that is my crowning achievement. <laughs> that is top, top stuff, Ian. Top, top stuff. I do apologise, Ian. <laughs> Um, so yeah, so Ian has joined us today as we, we're going to look into West Ham's positive start to the season, how Moyes has steadied the ship, um, the ongoing discontent with the ownership, and we'll discuss what the future holds for the Hammers. So Ian, welcome to the show. Again, feel free to correct anything <laughs> I've just said because you are an incredibly busy man. Um, and, and how have you recovered from Saturday evening's drama at the London Stadium as well? Well, unfortunately, I didn't witness any of it because um, I got a call about 20 to 5 on Saturday from my boss at LBC saying, could you come in for 7 o'clock to do a six-hour US election special programme? Oh, so I had to drive up did. to London and do that with no preparation whatsoever. So I didn't see any of the match, apart from obviously I have seen the goals and the highlights since. Um but it looked to be one of those matches where I mean, normally we do quite well against Fulham. I think we haven't, I think we've won our last 10 home games against them. But uh, it was one of those occasions where you thought, well, Mitrovic hasn't scored for five games or something. He's bound to score against us because that's always what happens. But he didn't. And eventually um, we won. I think the goal, I mean... <laughs> some of the match of the day pundits reckoned it was offside well we've had so many VAR decisions go against us not just this season but last season I think we had more than virtually any other club so it was nice mm. to get one go our way in the end and and then that ridiculous penalty what on earth was Lookman thinking yeah I was very surprised to not see Mitrovic step before that penalty um, I assumed Lookman given he's new and given he's you know came in over Mitrovic there was an expert <laughs> from well, 12 yards oh, and he might be but I, I mean if you're if you're three nil up you you can try a penalty like that but you don't do it in the last minute of a game where if you miss you've got no opportunity to come back for it i mean scott parker must have been incandescent no absolutely i mean i think i remember perlow scored a penenka penalty against england in the uh the 2012 euros mm. and when they go in i mean that was painful but when they go in they are a beauty to behold but as you said i mean to be 1-0 down, to take probably his first penalty for the club, I think. Um, quite a new signing. It's just audacious. And Well, I remember Paolo Di Canio did something similar. I think it was the match where we were 4-2 down against Bradford City. This would have been about 2000. Uh, it was Upton Park. And um, I think we had Stephen Bywater in goal. All our goalkeepers were injured. And so he came in as the third choice goalkeeper and um, had an absolute nightmare. And uh, we got a penalty and Frank Lampard and Di Canio had a wrestle over who was going to take it because Lampard was our penalty taker and was a very good penalty taker. But in the end, he gave in and uh, Di Canio took it. 
And I just, I thought to myself, I know what's going to happen here. He's going to try and do something clever and chip the goalkeeper or do something like that. <laughs> now, luckily, he didn't, and he did blast it. But there were several penalties that he took where he basically um, took a liberty, and uh, mostly they came off. But if they don't, it is incredibly embarrassing. I just think everybody should adopt the Mark Noble approach to penalties, just slam it in, and uh, he, he misses very, very few. Yeah, well, the Lampard approach, you know, we used to strike it down the middle and even if the keeper yeah. does stay static, you know, the odds of it going through Adam and yeah. then him managing to parry it forwards or not parry it into his goal is, uh, you know, unlikely. So, yeah. Okay, Ian, so to kick things off, I think the most important question here is how was Pointless Celebrities? As you can tell by my reaction, I was uh, very, very impressed <laughs> by that achievement. I think I think you were actually very jealous. That's That's the word you were looking for. Yeah, I think you're not wrong. You're not wrong at all. Well, I, to be honest, I'd never seen the program before I went on it. I, I, I tell you, I, I watched an episode that morning because um, I couldn't really understand the rules of it. Um, and we recorded it back in January. And uh, we, we were sworn to secrecy about what would happen. I was on with Jackie Smith of Strictly Come Dancing fame. We do a podcast together each week called For the Many. It's sort of a review of the week yep. in politics. And we were up against various other political commentators and journalists. And we we just didn't want to go out in the first round because that would have been very embarrassing. And in the end, Camilla Tomini and Rachel Johnson both got uh, the, the dreaded X. And so they didn't score any uh, – well, they scored 200 points. So they were out in the first round. And then, I can't remember whether it was in the second round, I think it was, there was a round on Japanese food. My heart absolutely sank because I know nothing. I've never had, well, I had Japanese food once and decided never to again. Uh, so luckily, Jackie did know about, about uh, Japanese food. So she scored quite well on that. And in the end, we made it to the final. We didn't get the pointless um, two and a half grand prize because I think that we got it down to two. I think that was my answer that did that. But um we didn't, uh, it was a strange category. I can't even remember what it was now. It seems so long ago, though. It took them 11 months. And they, they obviously held it over till Jackie was on Strictly Come Dancing. So um, she got two hits on a Saturday night. <laughs> it's, a, it's a very ugly trophy as well. People keep saying, oh, it's much coveted. And I'm thinking, well, why? It's really, it's really not very pretty. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, and so moving on to West Ham Till I Die, how did it all come about? Where did your involvement with it begin? Well, funnily enough, it was Fulham's fault back in, I think, 2006. We had played Fulham at Upton Park, and I think we'd lost in the last minute. And it was one of those games where we should have won and we we didn't score. They scored right at the end of the game. And I, I remember walking out of the ground absolutely incandescent, not least because as I walked out of the ground, I was behind some six foot seven guy who was slagging off David Golden. Well, no, actually, it can't have been David Golden Sullivan because they weren't there. Maybe I've got that mixed up. It must have been, must have been another match. Um, anyway, I, I, I remember driving down the A2, driving home to Tunbridge Wells, and I was literally slamming the steering wheel. I was Even though it's half an hour after the match had ended, I was fizzing with absolute rage. And I got home and I thought, well, there are all these other websites on West Ham why don't I start one? So I, I worked out how to start it on WordPress. And by midnight, I'd got a thousand people looking at what I'd written. I thought, wow, this is great. I'd, I already had a political blog, so I knew how to set up a blog. And it, it really went on from there. And I've tried to make it a site that is slightly less shouty than some of the other ones, um, <laughs> even though it started off in a fairly shouty way. 
and um, it, it's not a news site. We it's more commentary. So we we just post one article a day. At the beginning, it was mainly me that was writing it. Now it's predominantly other people. I still write on the odd occasion. I still do the match day stuff, uh, but yeah. I, I just can't do an article every day. I mean, there was a time when I was doing maybe two or three a day. So I've got this little team of people who contribute um, one per day, and uh, people comment. And it's it's it's. I think people like it because it's not cluttered with <clears throat> sorry with with adverts. I don't have any adverts on it. I fund it myself. Uh, whereas a lot of the other West Ham sites, I mean that. Claret and Hue, which is a really good news site. They have eight or nine articles a day, but it's almost unreadable because of the pop-up ads and all of those things. And Hammers News is another one. And you just think, well, in the end, they must lose readers because it's more about the adverts and the content sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's a feature of um, local newspapers as well. I mean, I'm a Sunderland fan, and I suppose if you support a, a club, well, largely outside of London, you, you, you go to your local paper or your local newspaper, mm. their site for... The latest scoop on you know get the local journalists who will be in contact with the club and the websites are always absolutely flooded with advertisements yeah. you can't get on it. Yeah. Um, the Southern Echo is a, a good example of that. So yeah, you're you're right in. And that yeah, but that's, that's, coming across. that's quite a good thing, though, in Sunderland, though, isn't it? Because the more adverts they have, the less they can write about the football club. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, you say that, but I mean, the level of advertising now, I think it's went from, you know, big hitters who are Premier League sponsors yeah. to now local gravy, gravy manufacturers and pie shops. Well, my friend Kevin Maguire, um, who I appear on TV sometimes with, he's an absolutely ardent Sunderland fan. And um, I think he's become very philosophical over the years. But it, it's a sort of club that I think, Sunderland, I think, are a little bit like West Ham in that people kind of want them to do well. They may not support them, but they, they're kind of like, that. They, they are a club that's steeped in history. Um, they, apart from Newcastle fans, I don't think they have many sort of massive enemies. And um, you sort of think back to the glory days and you think, well, hopefully they'll come again. Have I redeemed myself now? No, absolutely. No, I'm, I'm, I'm glad to hear you. You're a quasi fan of Sunderland. And no, the, the, the documentaries are, I think, quite refreshing to watch. I mean, I've not actually seen the Manchester City or the Tottenham documentaries as yet. But I hear the Spurs one is an excellent watch because the, the insight you get yeah. behind a club like Tottenham who have become you know, such an ultra modern and progressive club. Obviously, Mourinho is great fun. However, Sunderland, you know, it's cataloging that kind of downfall, I think, is what a lot of people, I mean, it's not great for my good self to watch, but for those who don't know the club as well, or to see a club actually fall from grace mm. like that and how it affects a club. And then you see basically how a club then operates at the lower levels and get that insight. Maybe it's a bit different well, to what I'm, you I'm, see I'm, in the Spurs. I'm, I'm hoping that was the motivation for the Spurs documentary, that it catalogues their decline and fall over the years. But uh, <laughs> we, we can but live in hope. Yeah, absolutely. So before the season began, um, West Ham obviously has since done quite well, but there was a statistic which went out, which was 8.8% of West Ham fans were optimistic, putting them rock bottom of the Premier League table of optimistic fans and second to last place was West Brom with 37.9%. So the question I kind of have to you, Ian, is why was it so negative before the season started? Why did fans think that, uh, you know, this season was going to go terribly when it hasn't so far? I don't know, because if you think of the way we finished the last season, we did really well in the last few games. So the, 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 the team has started to play as a team rather than a collection of individuals who've never met each other. Uh, and that was the problem, I think, under uh, Pellegrini, 
and also to an extent in the initial days of David Moyes' uh, second term. Um, West Ham fans are a miserable bunch. They they always they're always glass half empty people. And even when we're doing well, there's always you look on the comments on the different websites and blogs, and there's always something to moan about. And I suppose, in a way, that's no different to any other club. I mean, you, mm. you must know that being an Arsenal fan at the moment, I suppose. Um, uh, I, I wasn't that uh, pessimistic at the beginning of the season. I thought that we had finished the last season really well. Uh, we, we didn't make massive signings in the close season, but the, the signings that we have made have so far turned out to be fantastic. I mean, the, the right back mm. that we signed from Sparta Prague, Vladimir Sufal, um, I keep wanting to call him Kufal, but apparently it is Sufal, he has been a revelation. And that's a position that has caused us a few problems over the last couple of years. And we haven't had bad players at right back, but they, they, they've just not been brilliant defenders. They've not been bad at going forward. But Sufal really seems to be the real deal. And he only cost, I think, about five million. You look at Thomas Suchek as well, uh, the Czech midfielder that we signed um, in the January transfer window. He's been an absolute revelation. Uh, people say, well, he's a bit like Fellaini or Vieira. And he doesn't ask score some goals as well, which mm. you, for a defensive midfielder, he's got this knack of just appearing in the box at the right time, a bit like Fellaini always used to for, for uh, Manchester United. So I, th- those two signings have been absolutely crucial. And now we have, um, let's say, Ben Rama from Brentford, who uh, is a bit of an unknown quantity. In a sense, he's a very un-David Moyes-like player. He's a bit of a luxury player in some ways. On his day... He will be like Dimitri Payet, but on off days, I'm told he can completely disappear. Well, West Ham are not a team that can allow one player to disappear. And the, the problem he's got at the moment is that the team are playing so well, it's quite difficult to see that he's actually going to get an opportunity unless someone's injured. Masuaku, who's been at the club for four or five years now, I think, um, not a great fan favourite, but he's been an absolute revelation in the last few games. Well, you can't drop someone like him when he's playing at the top of his game and that that would be Ben Rama's natural position so there's some real competition for places in the way that maybe there hasn't been in previous years you've got Lanzini and Yarmolenko and Snodgrass on the bench all players who might expect to have a claim to a first team spot particularly Lanzini but um, they're going to have to bide their time because David Moyes is very much of the view that if, if, you, if you're playing well and you keep winning why would you change the team? So I think you're right there, Ian. Yeah, you should never really change uh, a winning team. However, when I look at the West Ham transfer business, you know they, they were heavily, heavily linked with the centre halves. Uh, they were linked with James Tarkowski of Burnley, who we know is a, is a very good player, and Wesley Fofana, who is now at Leicester. If I look at West Ham's roster, you know they've got Craig Dawson, they've got uh, Diop and Balbuena, as well as Angelo Bonner, who I believe is recovering from an injury. But are they a bit light in central defence, do you think? Um, possibly they're a bit light in central defence. That seemed to be the uh, that they want, really wanted another central defender. They couldn't get any of the star players they wanted, so they ended up with Craig Dawson. I could never really see the point of that signing because um, he's been relegated. I don't believe in buying players from relegated mm. sides too much, and I think yeah. we've done a little bit too much of that in the past. And Craig Dawson was, I think, it, was it West Brom he was relegated with, and then and then Watford. 
And you think, well, there's a reason for that. So um, I don't think he's going to get much of a look in. Now, Ogbonna apparently has got a knock at the moment. So Diop will now come in to partner Balbuena, who I think has been an absolute... Ogbonna and Balbuena have been at the core of the reason that we have been playing really well. Uh, we've... We were leaking goals last season. This season hasn't been quite so bad. Maybe we've let, still let in too many. Um, but we have a couple of uh, youth team defenders who got a look in at the end of last season and in pre-season friendlies, and they look quite good as well. So I'm not massively worried about uh, central defence at the moment. But I mean, if, if one more got injured, then then there might be a bit of a problem. But I think Ogbonna will only be out for a couple of weeks. Mm. Well, on the on the uh, we touched on previously the, the topic of trophy photographs. Uh, I met Ogbonna in an Italian restaurant in Wapping and got a photograph with him. So, <laughs> so Ian, if you, if you want me to send you a copy of that, so you can, you know, like like Etches, pretend you were there in the moment. <laughs> so you, you've mentioned uh, obviously the competition of the squads uh, and how competitive it's been with some players not being able to feature, and who's particularly shown. You know, we've discussed obviously Captain Declan Rice, who we know has done very very well, Suchek and. Um, Sufal, who have been brilliant, and even Pablo Fornals has played quite well. But the one guy mm. I kind of want to focus on is uh, Mikel Antonio, who initially I wasn't particularly too keen on. And I think as when Project Restarts it uh, happened, he had some really, really good form, which he's continued into this season. And I kind of feel the Premier League have turned around and said to a player like Antonio, you know, he, he can really cut it at this level. Well, he clearly can cut it at this level. Uh, when we came back after lockdown, he was the top scorer in the Premier League in the games at the end of last season, and he's picked up where he left off. Um, we signed him from Nottingham Forest for, I think, £7 million probably five years ago, something like that. I think he's been an absolute revelation. Uh, he can play wide right, wide left, right back, anywhere, really. And now he's converted into a central striker. And his great asset is that nobody knows what he's going to do next, least of all him. Uh, and if he doesn't know what he's going to do next, the defenders don't know. And he's got he's got an immense physique, which I think people haven't really commented on. He's incredibly strong, really wide shoulders, a very strong upper body, got a good balance as well. And if you're in a tussle with Antonio, you know you've been in a tussle. <laughs> and he's, he's he's a really strong guy, and I think that really helps him. He can score with his head. Uh, he's got a good shot on him. Uh, you could argue, well, he doesn't score enough from the number of opportunities that he has. Many of them are self-created, it has to be said. But I don't think any West Ham fan would uh, accept the fact, uh, any analysis, that he hasn't lived up to his potential. In fact, some would say he's surpassed what we all thought he was capable of. But he and Jared Bowen show that there are quality players in the, in the championship and maybe even in the lower leagues as well. That if you if you identify the right ones, um, you don't have to spend thirty or forty or fifty million pounds on a player to to get really good value. Uh, Jared Bowen, I don't think we've seen the best of him yet, but he he has been brilliant in in many of the games yep. that he's played. Uh, my producer at LBC, he's a whole City fan for his sins, and he was always raving about Jared Bowen and could never understand why no one had come in for him. So when West Ham came in, he, he said, "Look, you have got one of the best players in the Championship there," uh, and so far I think he's been proved right. He's kept Yarmolenko out of the side, and okay, Yarmolenko is hot and cold a bit we we haven't really seen the best of him given that he's ukraine's second time highest scorer after second um, second highest scorer after shevchenko and he's i think he scored 38 goals for them oh wow um, I, I i i have wondered whether Moyes might look at starting yarmolenko up front 
Um, if Haller's form continues to be as abysmal as it is at the moment, I could see that Yarmolenko could be given the central striker role if Antonio isn't fit. And remember what Moyes did with Marko Arnautovic. He, he brought him from being a winger into a central striker and he couldn't stop scoring. And, and that, mm. that, much as I've never been a massive fan of David Moyes, um, you have to give him credit for that. Yeah, you touched on a point I was literally about to make around um, West Ham signing from the Championship because obviously Ben Ramos came in, uh, Jared Bourne, who's done very well, as you say, and obviously Antonio. Uh, I believe there was Joe Hugel came in from Preston a few years ago and that wasn't a success, but it shows the kind of the gamble that you do take at that level. But as you say, because you're not spending 20, well, Ben Rama's different, but you know, because you're not normally spending over 10 million pounds, 15 million pounds. Yeah, guess- well, Hugel was a strange one. I mean, he came in for ten million from Preston. Um, he, he had an okay goal scoring record, but it wasn't particularly brilliant. And at the time, I thought, well, that's a bit odd. Apparently, David Moyes' brother was involved in the transfer. I make no comment on that, but he didn't really get a chance at West Ham. Uh, Moyes never really played in Pellegrini, certainly didn't. He then went out on loan, I think, to QPR Middlesbrough and maybe back to QPR. Now he's he's been sold to Norwich, where he scored mm. the, he scored the odd goal. I don't think he scored that many, but. I mean, look, he didn't get a chance, so it's unfair to judge him because I think he only pulled on a shirt a couple of times as a substitute. Yeah, yeah, I think that's definitely a fair point. I think to further on that, the Premier League is guilty at times of buying standard European players for huge, huge fees instead of looking homegrown, whether it's a championship or even League One. Uh, you know, a good example is Madison, who joined Leicester from Norwich. Uh, he was a revelation at Leicester so far, England International, a real key part of their team. But, you know, some of the bigger clubs weren't really looking that yeah. way. You could then look at Arsenal, you know, a bit of a sore one with someone like Nicolas Pepe, who's clearly a very, very talented player. Um, but, you know, when you look at that fee, you, you do wonder, um, could we have got better value by looking close to England, whether it'd be another Prem club, looking at wingers there or potentially even the championship? Well, look look at look at Ollie Watkins, yeah. Perfect example. Yeah, quite. I mean, he's he's been an absolute revelation for Villa this season, hasn't he? Um, look, I, I'm not against buying foreign players. I think if you look at some of our foreign signings, they've been absolutely outstanding. Others, uh, not quite so much. You, you look at Diop, for example. We, we bought him as a very young player from a French side for, I think, £21 million, which at the time people sort of thought, that, well, that's a lot for a, for an unproven player. But again, he Manchester United, Mourinho, when he was there, he, he looked at signing him for something like 50 or £60 million from us. Mm. Now, some people might say, well, we should, we should have taken it while we could. Um, you look at Payet, and what a brilliant signing he was. Okay, he didn't last that long and um, went back after a couple of years. But any West Ham fan will, even though they might not like him as a man, as a player, wow, probably the best player to play for West Ham since Tucanio. Uh, no one would have wanted to have foregone that experience. Um, Lanzini, again, we picked up him. He was t- entirely unknown and he's been a brilliant player for us. I mean, slightly hot and cold, but Liverpool were willing to pay £50 million for him at one point. He then got injured for nearly a year. Has never quite been the same since. So I, I think we have made some fantastic foreign signings, but there have been far too many turkeys as well among them, it has to be said. <laughs> <laughs> no, absolutely. I mean, that's a. I mean, obviously, it's Sunderland. There was a lot of turkeys, a hell of a lot. Um, so, so moving on. What, what, uh, just on, to, just on Sunderland. What happened then. to that striker that you had? I can't remember his name. Who went? Who was transferred to a French club? Um, oh, uh, Josh Major. That's the one. The young uh, Josh Major. I mean, yeah, that he, was, he looked to be an immense player. 
He was, and he took League One by storm in our first season back. And he was, you know, he really was looking like he'd lead the scoring charts in League One. It looked as if with that, we actually might go up. Um, but there was a situation with his contract, with the amount he was going to be offered here as opposed to elsewhere. Mm-hmm. And his agent, who I don't know the name of, um, was, and it's in, the, it's in the documentary actually at this, yeah. this point, um, that he's famous for, he's well known for trying to move English players or players that play in England um, at a young age abroad to perhaps get, you know, um, a windfall for himself or to get a bigger contract for um, the player um, from perhaps from the AFL to say Liga 1 for example mm-hmm. uh, but he's a brilliant player exceptional he seems to now actually be um, stamping a place in the Bordeaux team which initially you know was frustrated at the start because he didn't play <laughs> yeah. we lost our best our best player and they, he was sitting on the bench at Bordeaux but, um, and we never replaced him and we still haven't and it's you know it's crucial mm-hmm. on a promotion campaign as you'll rightly know from West Ham's promotion campaigns of old to have a striker that's putting in at least 20 goals in a season, yeah. particularly across 46 league games. Um, so yeah, it's a crying shame that he's he's no longer with us and we now have Danny Graham, Will Grigg and uh, Charlie White who can't seem to you know, hit a barn door. <laughs> it, 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 is, it is one of those things though that for clubs like Sunderland and um, West Ham, not, not so much Arsenal, but uh, you know that your best players are going to go in the end. It, it is only a matter of time before Declan Rice goes, I think. I, I, I thought yeah. he might go this summer, but I'm, I'm so glad he didn't. And there are rumours that Chelsea are now going to come in from in, in January. Um, I, I would love to think that we can get another two, th- two or three years out of Declan. But in, in the end, um, you, you can't blame a player for wanting to play at the top level. And if West Ham aren't going to challenge for a European spot, and let's face it, it, that looks unlikely at the moment, but you never know, um, you can't blame a player for wanting to better themselves. No, absolutely. And if you look at Leicester, who you'd say now are the, I mean, they've got, they're currently in the top four, but the, the top of the top of the bottom 14 sort of thing. So yeah. they're kind of the, the top team outside the top six. They lose. I mean, they've lost Chilwell, Kante, Mares, Drinkwater. All these players left to go to, well, largely Chelsea, but to top four teams. Um, and so even them themselves, and they've grown so much over the years, can't seem to. And it was always it was always a, a, a topic of debate with among Sunderland fans. What's the ceiling when we were in the Premier League? You know, what can we actually expect? Can we expect mid-table obscurity? And um, or can we actually, you know, vie for? But to they, better ourselves. This whole thing West Ham are in the same sort of... Yeah, well, they are, but this whole thing about mid-table obscurity I, I think is a complete misnomer because um, it, it will always be the case that there are four or five teams at the top who will, will be there semi-permanently. From time to time, one of them will fall by the wayside and there'll be an opportunity for another one to take their place. And we're seeing that at the moment. I think it's probably a lot more open this season than in the past. It, Manchester United, Arsenal... Um, certainly don't look to be at the races at the moment. So there is an opportunity for other teams to, to to show what they're capable of. Now, we're only in the early stages of the season. Who knows where we'll be by March or April. Um, and I would love to see another Leicester breaking through. I don't think uh, that another Leicester is going to win the Premier League in, in the foreseeable mm. future, but there is an opportunity to to go on. And there's nothing, there is nothing embarrassing about finishing 14th in the Premier League. No, <laughs> there really not. isn't. <laughs> No, absolutely not. And, and also the Europa League now and you know, the old UEFA Cup has, I think, grown quite a lot, obviously, largely due to the fact that the prize is now Champions League football yeah. winning that. But that competition's grown a lot. The standard has increased quite a lot. So, I mean, there's talk of a European Conference League, which has been muted, uh, muted around a bit for even, a, you know, the competition below that. But if West Ham, you know, that, that's feasible that West Ham could qualify for the Europa League if they did very well in the season. And that would be a fantastic campaign 
um, for the Hammers and their well, fans. I, I remember our last one, which ended fairly quickly, shall we say? Oh yeah, against um, oh, what's Astra. that name? Um, Astra. Yeah. yeah, it was that- ironic, wasn't it? That um, West Ham qualified on fair play. Uh, rules and then I think I had two players sent off. Yeah, and it, it was I think the first season we were at the London Stadium because I remember going mm. to that. And but then I think we, I can't remember. Did we lose the away leg? No, I think we drew. We drew the away leg and then we lost at home. Which when we first went to the London Stadium, uh, we lost so many matches. Which uh, nowadays that that we seem to have um, got a little bit better at home. Mm, absolutely. So, I mean, moving on to the London Stadium, to the ownership, Ian. Obviously, myself and Etches aren't West Ham fans. Uh, some of our listeners aren't. What is the current situation with, you know, Gold, Sullivan, um, Karen Brady, the ownership debacle? Can you shed some light on that and what your view is of the owners? Well, I, I think West Ham fans should be very careful what they wish for because I can understand why many people want to see a change of ownership. But a change to what? Um, it, it's not, there isn't necessarily a lot of green grass on the other side because we all know that various uh, new owners have come into the Premier League and some of them have been very good. Some of them have not. And at the moment, there are rumours that there are various people wanting to buy West Ham, uh, mainly American consortia. Well, you look at American record in in the Premier well, League. I, yeah, I mean, I don't need to tell um, you. I mean, I can't imagine that the ownership of Arsenal is massively popular with Arsenal fans. Um, you 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 look at um, what's happened in the past with Liverpool and Manchester United, and I, I'm absolutely. I think the thing is that Sullivan and Gull, whatever you think of them as individual people, they are West Ham fans, and particularly David Gold. And that does count for something. Now, they have made some terrible decisions along the way. Um, who on earth in their right mind would have appointed Avram Grant as manager, <laughs> for example? Um, it was quite clear right from the outset that that was doomed to failure. Um, Karen Brady, I think, shall we say, has her mind elsewhere at the moment she's got so many different fingers and so many different pies it's a wonder she has any time to run west ham at all and i suspect her tenure is drawing to a close anyway i think i hear that she hasn't got the same kind of relationship with david sullivan that she used to have um, that's just gossip i've no idea whether it's true um so i've never been at this part of the so-called um gsb out group um I wouldn't object if there was a change of ownership, if it was the right ownership. And I thought that there was a real long-term interest in the future of West Ham rather than someone coming in trying to make a fast buck. Because we all, we've all seen examples of different clubs where that's uh, not had a very nice outcome. Yeah. They, so in the end, if the team are doing well, all of the Gold, Sullivan, Brady out brigade uh, will quieten down. If they're not doing well and we look as if we're in for a relegation fight, it'll all start up again. That's just the way f- football fans are. It's understandable in many ways. But everyone always puts it at the table of the, the chairman or the managing director if the team is doing badly. The fact is that Sullivan supported Pellegrini's spending binge. He spent £200 million on some very average players. and. Sullivan gets a lot of criticism for involving himself too much in transfers and buying the odd wild card that he says to the manager, well, I don't care if you want him, here he is, play him. Um, and one or two of those players that he signed have actually gone to do quite, gone on to do quite well. Um, but they 
they basically let Pellegrini do what he wanted on the basis that, well, the fans wanted a, um, a Champions League-style manager. Now they've got one, so we have to back him. And look what happened. Um, he brought in Roberto. Well, if Roberto hadn't had to replace Fabianski, I don't think we would have been in a relegation fight last season. And how anyone looking at that guy's record could think that he should be um, the, the deputy to Fabianski, I, I still do not know. And there were several other players that you scratch your head and you think, well, what, what did they see in, in them? And, and there were some quite expensive ones. I mean, Haller... I will exempt from that because I do think Haller is a quality player. We, we we could see that from how he played for Frankfurt. The problem for Haller is that the team is not playing to his strengths. Haller likes to have um, a, a second striker playing alongside him or off him. And West Ham don't play that way. They didn't with Pellegrini. They don't with Moyes. And I don't see any point in spending £45 million on a player unless you're actually going to form the team around them and play to their strengths. Uh, and they're still not doing that. I was hoping that um, maybe if they played Haller with Ben Rama up alongside him, that might transform Haller because he seems to me to be a confidence player and he's got no confidence at the moment. You, you can just tell that. But he does know where the goal is. He, he's proved that in the past and hopefully um, he'll find it again very soon. Yeah, Haller's a bit of a weird one. I watched the Manchester City game and uh, you could tell straight away when he came on for Antonio that he's very low on confidence. And I think that when you're a striker low on confidence... Yeah maybe a club like West Ham who aren't creating as many chances as, as let's say City, uh, maybe not City yeah. now, but okay, Liverpool or Chelsea or even Leicester, you know, it's, it's much easier to get the chances there to score, to bring your confidence back up. Whereas, you know, it could be trickier at West Ham and someone like Haller really needs that boost. So hopefully it can come sooner rather than later. Well, he, he, he does. When he first joined us, the first few matches he played, and then I think he got injured, um, and he's not actually a player prone to injury, but his first few matches, he was all over the pitch, tackling, going for headers, um, going back in defence sometimes when he needed to, and he did score goals. And we want to see that player back again. Um, and he ought to be able to get the goal. The team is playing well. We, we should have beaten Arsenal. We should have. We got a point against Manchester City. Could easily have won that. Most people thought we should have won it. Um, against Liverpool, we were doing really well. Um, just happened to let the goal in in the last few minutes. So we are holding our own against the top teams at the moment. We we actually always tend to play better against the top teams. Never, never understood why that why that is. I suppose they they like the big occasion. And Haller ought to take inspiration from that. But instead, he just seems to be nervy and disengaged. And I suppose in a Moyes team where, you know, Moyes makes his team, was made very, as West Ham, very adept defensively. Um, and I mean, even against Fulham, um, there was question marks of whether or not there's the potency is really there. And if you can get a goal, if West Ham can get a goal under Moyes, then there's a very good chance they'll shut the opposition out and, and get a win. Um, but does that, does that provide much scope for your centre forwards, um, particularly a player like Haller, to be, to be getting 15 plus goals this season? They might not need to if, they can, if West Ham can achieve that level of defensive defensive record that Moyes does like to try and build. If a striker is going to get upwards of uh, 12, 15 goals a season, he's got to have the service. And at the moment, you have to say that the service is there. Uh, Masuaku and Bowen on either side are doing really well. Fornals is a player that has taken a little time to find his feet at West Ham, but he's coming into some great form and, and he's scoring the odd goal as well, he's kind of taken over the the Lanzini role, the, the sort of traditional number ten role. Um, so 
I, I think the striker, whoever's playing as a striker, is getting more and more chances. And and the more that Masuaku gets confidence, because he can beat anybody on his day, and and he's got, even though he's only ever scored one goal for West Ham, um, <laughs> he, he came very close against Fulham. I think um, the, he's an absolute pile driver, nearly, nearly scored, the yeah, goalkeeper yeah. tipped it over. Um, at some point, his luck will change in, in front of goal. And, and I... I think he and Cresswell have combined in a way that we haven't seen since Cresswell and Pyatt. Um, they, they just instinctively knew where each other was going to be, and, and you, you do need that between the fullback and the uh, and the uh, wide midfielder. And we, we we've had that on the left before. I remember Matty Etherington was brilliant at combining with the, the, whoever was the <laughs> left back then. I can't Boy, remember now. Uh, yeah, indeed. And um, but on on the right, we've always found that slightly more challenging. The the right fullback position and the right midfield position have have been traditionally for us much more difficult than the left. Mm, no, absolutely. I mean, Masawaku oozes technical ability, and he, you you get the impression with him with confidence in the right team yeah. and the right position, he actually could be a star. Um, we have to see maybe the heights that he could he could live up to. Well, of course, he joined us as a le- as a left back, but you could see right from the off that he wasn't a defender. He loved going forward, and whenever on the odd occasion when he was played left midfield, he did really well. And it's taken like four or five years for the penny to drop that he's not a defender. <laughs> he was he's one of them players you knew you know at youth level to have gained that level of kind of uh, technical ability and kind of attacking prowess at youth level. He was definitely a you yeah. know a wide man, winger, yeah. forward. Um, and then probably converted. And sometimes when they come through a bit early, maybe like Gareth Bale, for example, they do get converted into the fullback or wingback positions because that's typically where yeah. teams need to promote youth. And usually the wide areas are seen as maybe too important and they've already got personnel in there. Um, so you can see that or how that happens. And I get the impression that is what happened with Masawako. So hopefully we'll see him um, further forward and you know displaying the technical prowess that he does have um, for West Ham. So, so we can go just for finally now, just to just to conclude. What's your prediction for the rest of the season? It's difficult as a West Ham fan. It was difficult as a Sunderland fan, um, and I think Newcastle is is a club that I always draw parallels to with West Ham. Where do you? Th- what's your predictions for the remainder of the season? Where can you see? Where do you see West Ham in the next say, three to five years? I know it's a broad question. Well, I I think at the beginning of the season I would have predicted we'd end up thirteenth, fourteenth, fifteenth, something like that. I, I always thought it would be a better season than last season. But the the way that we've started does give me confidence that we can push on from there. I think at the moment we're twelfth. And and bear in mind, we have had the most difficult run of games, I think, of any Premier League side so far. And we've got yeah, I, there were people that were predicting what mainly West Ham fans, it has to be said, that we wouldn't have any points by the end of October. Well, we got points against all, most of those top teams. And, um, and the ones where we didn't get points, um, Spurs, Liverpool and Arsenal, we should have done. And we can take a huge amount of solace from the fact from our p- performances in those games. And I think the longer this team can play together, and the longer we can avoid any serious injuries, and even Antonio, I'm told, will be back after the international break, so he would have only missed two games, mm. uh, and we and we will have and we won one of them. Um, if we can avoid serious injuries, then I think we can push on into the top half. I'm not going to predict that we'll qualify for the Europa League, but I think if we finished eighth, ninth, tenth, I think most of us would think, well, that's not been a bad season, and we'd have settled for that at the beginning. 
Uh, and a lot of that credit will have to go to David Moyes. As, as I've said, I, I've always been a Moyes skeptic. I wouldn't have I wouldn't have appointed him in this first term. I wouldn't have reappointed him. But I think he's. You, you can just sort of tell that he he actually really likes it at West Ham and, and knows that he's got a real opportunity here to build something. Um, I, I don't know what Sunderland fans' memories of him are. <laughs> Probably not not very. Um, positive. Well, um, yeah, I was gonna, I was gonna say, you say you're a boy, we're a boy skeptic. I mean, I mean, so am I. But I mean, it's, <laughs> it's Sunderland who came, he was, al- he came into a, a sinking ship. The, the ship was already yeah. half sunk by the time he came. Had no funds to build on him. I, th- I think he, he should never, he shouldn't be. Um, he wasn't good at us. He wasn't great. Made some decisions that I think a lot of fans wouldn't necessarily agree with. But what? he, he, he's got a fantastic record, obviously at Everton, and I, you don't become a bad coach overnight. No, you don't. And I think the players actually really relate to him in a way that they didn't with Pellegrini. Um, he, he does get involved on the training field in, in a way that I'm not sure Pellegrini did. And he, he, to be fair to him, he's playing a West Ham style of football, which I know people get really annoyed when you say the West Ham way. And Sam Allardyce used to say, you yeah, well, that's the West Ham way was to lose. Well, <laughs> Moy, Moyes, I think, actually does want to play attractive football. And so far this season, anybody who's watched any West Ham game, possibly with the exception of the first one against Newcastle, would would say that they have been a really good team to watch. But they've been quite defensively, quite quite tight defensively too. And that that's where you you hope that Moyes introduces a bit of discipline that was lacking before. He's also got them fitter. Um I I haven't looked at the running statistics lately, but under Pellegrini, we were at the bottom of the league in terms of uh, miles covered in a, in a match. Uh, I'm told that we're now way in the top half, and I think that does that that says something. But also, West Ham, if we start off a game very slowly, it, we find it very difficult to get the tempo up. Whereas if we're playing at a fast tempo right from the beginning. That's when West Ham play well because they have got skillful players. They can do all the tippy tappy stuff, um, and, and we we love to watch that. Uh, I'm not somebody who says, "Well, I'd, I'd rather lose four three and watch a brilliant game than win one nil." Um, <laughs> I, I think that way lies relegation. Lies relegation. <laughs> um, but I do want to watch a nice style of football. I, I when when Sam Allardyce was West Ham manager, he did a job for us. But it got to the point where I was seriously thinking about giving up my season ticket because it was incredibly boring to watch. And I think Moyes has got a happy medium. Unfortunately, and that's your third strike with Sunderland, I'm afraid. I mean, you've mentioned the Josh Madger saga, which is obviously very difficult for Giants to talk about, <laughs> as well as the Sunderland Till I Die documentary, which is even harder to discuss, as well as David Moyes. You know, you can hear the wobble in his voice. So I think, uh, yeah, you're out. Do- do you, do you feel a bit left out? Do you want to talk a bit more Arsenal? Ooh, um, actually, maybe... I, I will tell you an Arsenal anecdote. Um, <laughs> I, I remember I, the only time I've ever been to the Emirates was the, I think, the only time West Ham won yeah. there when Bobby Zamora scored from about twenty five yards, which shows you how long ago it was. Uh, but and but I, I remember going to. In fact, I think I saw us win as, as well at Highbury. Um, one year, I can't remember who scored that one, but. Uh, um, I mean, in, in a way, when when people talk about the London Stadium not being a football stadium, and they they look at say no, the Emirates, that's a really good football stadium. 
Um, my memory of the Emirates when I went there was that it was actually just as quiet as the London Stadium can be at times. And I think if a football team is playing well, the crowd react to that and get the stadium rocking. When when you've got 60,000 people in the London Stadium, if West Ham are on top, I mean, it is a fantastic atmosphere in there. But if we're playing terribly, it's a terrible atmosphere. But that people think that at Upton Park, it was just they have this sort of rather... Um, golded, gilded memory of Upton Park as it being a fantastic atmosphere all the time. Well, it wasn't. If we were playing badly, the atmosphere could be absolutely vile at times. Uh, and it's the same at the London Stadium. So people say, well, it isn't a football stadium. Well, it is because football is played there. And if you compare it to many of the European modern stadiums, it compares incredibly well. Um, yes, you are a bit further away from the pitch than you'd like probably, but there isn't a bad view in the place, um, wherever you're sitting. It, it's even if you're up in the gods, it's no worse view than than it would be at Wembley if you were up in the gods. So I, I actually really quite like the London Stadium. It's a very different experience. You can't compare it to Upton Park. It's like comparing chalk and cheese. And yeah, I went to Crystal Palace a couple of years ago, and a real old school stadium that. Yeah, you do get a bit of a hankering after that kind of atmosphere again. I, I won't I won't deny that, but. There's no point in looking back. We are where we are. And if if we can't make a stadium work with upwards of 60,000 people, um, then we, we, we're doing something wrong. So we, we discussed before, you know, how important form is for stadiums. And you said the Emirates is quiet sometimes, and I can confirm it is. You said you were sceptical on David Moyes and, you know, whether he could actually change the club's fortunes. And I kind of want to ask a question again where, do you think, obviously, with the West, with the start West Ham have had, Moyes can be the player, or sorry, the manager, to take West Ham to the next level? And what I mean by next level is, you know, when West Ham moved to the London Stadium, the target was this big thing, which was West Ham needs to target Europe and get European football and aim for the Champions League. I'm not saying that they'll be able to get there so soon because of the competition, but is Moyes the man that can slowly move them towards the target now, do you think? Yes, which is an answer I probably wouldn't have given you when he was appointed again. Um, I, I think he has brought a certain stability. I think he's got the respect of the players in a way that some of our recent managers um, have lost it all too quickly. Um, he does make some decisions which you scratch your head and you think, well, what, why has he done that? But you can kind of see uh, on the touchline how committed he is. He's a bit like Alan Pardew was when he was West Ham manager. You, you see a lot of emotion from him on the touchline and fans quite like that. Um, there was what, I can't remember which game it was. Um, couple of games ago where he was literally doing a David pleat on the on the touchline uh, and I, I don't think that he would necessarily have done that at some of his other clubs so I think he realizes that it, it's up to him now he really has got the world at his feet he's got a squad that is capable of doing really well if, if he motivates the players in the right way and, and I think he is capable of doing that um so I, I wish him all the luck in the world because there'll be no one. I mean, I will complete if he if he gets us into the top half of the table this season. Um, I will completely admit that I I was wrong and that uh, I was wrong to oppose his appointment for a second term. I think the the problem was, in retrospect, it would have been better if they'd kept him on at the time. Although we were all very excited when Pellegrini came because he he seemed to be a manager who had proved himself at the highest level. And um, he, we all thought he could take us to the next level. Well, how wrong we were.
No, absolutely. No, I don't think you can blame yourself for being a skeptic of Moyes. It's not just coming from myself, but I mean, his, his win record from leaving Everton has not been no. not been brilliant. And you know, I do hope West Ham do not fall the way that Sunderland have, and I do actually hope that they 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 build because they're a well supported club. They've got a good stadium. Um, you know, Moyes is, a, is someone that you know, he's not doing well for my club, but he's, he's a likable person. Everyone liked him at Everton. He actually did build an attacking team. I think you're right in saying that. Um, so I wish all the best to uh, to West Ham in the future, and uh, all the best for yourself, Ian, and with with your ongoing career and with the and with the page um, West Ham to that die. So I think on that note, we'll we'll wrap up today. And uh, but thank you so much for um, for coming on. It was great insight. Um, very much enjoyed it. And yeah, if you could if you could get us a, a, a immediate photo of that pointless award um and then i'll i'll, I'll reciprocate with um, the picture of me and angelo abono and il bordello and whopping um, i can't wait <laughs> well 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 thanks for having me on really enjoyed it no it's an absolute pleasure cheers ian and um yeah thank you very much cheers ian